Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is brought to you by none other than my weekend email. Every weekend, I send out a few interesting links, articles, and sources that I've been reading. The other weekend, for example, I shared five links, including a new research article by former guest of the podcast, Dave Tuckett, on the use of narratives in financial forecasting, and the closing three paragraphs from On What Matters Volume 3 by the late great Oxford moral philosopher Derek Parfit. Before his passing in 2017, Parfit was the Socrates of our time. He wrote only two books. The first was Reasons and Persons, and then came On What Matters. I particularly love the ending of On What Matters because Parfit conveys, in moving but Spartan prose, why humanity's survival matters more than most people think. So allow me to share the final three paragraphs with you. Quote, What now matters is how we respond to various risks to the survival of humanity. We are creating some of these risks and discovering how we could respond to these and other risks. If we reduce these risks and humanity survives the next few centuries, our descendants or successors could end these risks by spreading through this galaxy. Life can be wonderful as well as terrible, and we shall increasingly have the power to make life good. Since human history may be only just beginning, we can expect that future humans, or suprahumans, may achieve some great goods that we cannot now even imagine. In Nietzsche's words, there has never been such a new dawn and clear horizon, and such an open sea. If we are the only rational beings in the universe, as some recent evidence suggests, it matters even more whether we shall have descendants or successors during the billions of years in which that would be possible. Some of our successors might live lives and create worlds that, though failing to justify past suffering, would give us all, including some of those who have suffered, reasons to be glad that the universe exists. End quote. For a weekly dose of insight and inspiration, don't miss my weekend emails, which arrive in your inbox with a new set of links every Saturday. To join my mailing list and get access to my weekend emails, head to thejspod.com. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. If you're new to the show, welcome especially. Do make sure you subscribe to or follow the podcast to never miss a new episode. We release them every week, usually on Mondays, Australian time, although my schedule has been haphazard this past month. On the 19th of January, 1930, Frank Plumpton Ramsey, a lecturer in mathematics at Cambridge University, died at the age of 26. The world will never know what has happened, what a light has gone out, wrote Lytton Strachey, a key figure in the Bloomsbury set, which counted among its members the writer Virginia Woolf and the economist Maynard Keynes. Strachey's prediction turned out to be correct. Ramsey's name is little remembered, except by cliques of mathematicians, economists or philosophers whose entire subfields Ramsey birthed or recast. Regular listeners might be familiar with Ramsey's name from my two recent episodes with Zach Carter and Robert Skidelsky on the reign of Keynes. Ramsey was the young undergraduate who bested the economic titan in a debate over the very nature of probability, a debate the outcome of which was to ripple through economics in important ways, from subjective Bayesianism to rational expectations theory. 
But economics wasn't the only discipline on which Ramsey left his mark. No fewer than 16 theories or innovations across mathematics, economics and philosophy bear his name. Like a burning meteor, Ramsey's life was as short-lived as it was stunning. So how did he revolutionise entire academic disciplines all before the age of 27? What was his personality and why did he die so young? Helping me to answer these questions is my guest, Cheryl Misak. Cheryl is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. She received her Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar, and she's the author of a brilliant biography published last year titled Frank Ramsey, A Sheer Excess of Powers. While we don't get into the guts of subjective expected utility theory, where Ramsey arguably left his greatest mark, I suggest reading Ramsey's essay, Truth and Probability, and Cheryl's book for this, we sample some of the intellectual and personal highlights from Ramsey's astonishing life, from his Annus Mirabilis in 1929 to his explosive interactions with Ludwig Wittgenstein. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. Without much further ado, here is the great Cheryl Misak. Cheryl Misak, welcome to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Thanks for having me. Cheryl, I wanted to say congratulations and well done on giving Frank the biography he deserved. How did you come to write the book? I had written a book or I was working on a book called Cambridge Pragmatism. And Ramsey was the philosophical hero of that book. It was a straight up philosophy book. And people just started to tell me that since I was working in the archives and I was writing so much about Ramsey that this biography needed to be written. And actually, Marta Sen uh, convinced me uh, over lunch at Trinity College, Cambridge, one day, just do it, he said. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Wow, because nothing had been, or there was no comprehensive biography of Ramsey until yours, right? His sister, his younger sister, Margaret Paul, had uh, had written a, what ended up being called a sister's memoir. And that started off as a biography, and there's a, there's a lot of biographical elements to it. But I think she didn't quite finish it, and uh, it's... Uh, it's rough in some places. So yes, this is the first full intellectual biography. Frank was born on the 22nd of February, 1903. Who were his parents and what was his family like? He came from a very interesting family. His father, Arthur, was a kind of jobbing mathematician at Cambridge. He was a textbook writer, no great shakes, but he was he was a mathematics don at Cambridge, so he was you know he was an intellectual, and his mother, much more interesting, uh, was uh, an Oxford, an Oxford educated woman at a time when that was very rare, and she was a, a kind of social justice firebrand, interested in helping the poor visiting the the sick. She was a lefty, and her politics really uh, were absorbed by her son, Frank. The, the father was, uh, was an angry, uh, not very progressive man, and uh, Frank definitely uh, picked up his mother's politics, not his father's. At what stage was his genius apparent? 
it, it appears that it was apparent quite young. So, but, you know, the, the trouble is that parents will always amplify the, <laughs> the glories of their children. But there are all sorts of stories of, of Frank when he was really quite young, learning how to read by watching the billboards as he was pushed in his pram at a very young age and following politics at a very young age. And some of these incidents can be dated because there was a general election and you know he was interested in who might win and he was very young at the time. So the, it, stories get told of his brilliance as a, as a toddler. Uh, you have to take them with a grain of salt, but clearly we see the results. Uh, he, he did turn into a remarkable young man. And growing up in his household, what was the the expectation for Frank's future and his career? I think his the expectation was that he would become uh, some kind of academic, and so he more than fulfilled those expectations. And he arrives at Cambridge in 1920, probably at the most intellectually exciting time in the university's history, right? Sort of like an all-star cast of philosophers, economists. I, I think that's exactly right. It was right after the, the First World War. So it was also an interesting time socially and politically in the history of Cambridge University. So Frank arrives very young because he was so brilliant and so he was pushed ahead in school. He was, throughout his school days, three years younger than all of his classmates. Then he gra- he, he graduates from uh, Winchester College, uh, very young, and arrives in Cambridge, already three years younger, and now he's in there with all the vets who are six, seven years older than he was. And I think uh, this had some effect on, certainly, his social life. He was a very large... Uh, boy and a very large, still a boy then, Uh, and he arrived at Cambridge looking like he was as old as the others, but much, much younger, much less mature, and uh, he fell in to step with them immediately intellectually, and in fact uh, exceeded uh, uh, his peers intellectually, but emotionally he was still a little boy. And when you say large boy, he wasn't obese. He was very tall, right? And also just big framed. He was he was big framed, very tall. Towards the end of his life, he did get uh, uh, fat. <laughs> so he was uh, he did he did he did think of himself as a as a as a kind of fat man right at the end of his life. And you can see from the pictures he he gained a, a lot of weight. Uh, and it, I mean, it's at the end of his life was. He was 26 years old, so it wasn't that he was uh, at the age where one tends to put on the pounds, but he certainly did. Yeah, I remember one photo of him at his walking holiday in the Alps, and he's reclining on the grass, and he's got a book in one hand, and obviously chowing down on a piece of food in the other. So he dies on January the 19th, 1930, as you mentioned. He gets to live for 26 years. And so the 20s are really Frank's decade to shine, And I'd like to dip into a few of the intellectual highlights with you. And you cover many of them in the book, Frank going toe-to-toe with some of the intellectual giants of his age and often coming off better. But the two I want to focus on are Wittgenstein and John Maynard Keynes. 
And I thought perhaps we could begin with Wittgenstein because at the age of 18, Frank is picked to translate Wittgenstein's Tractatus into English. Why do they pick Frank? Well, first off, it was very unclear whether this really difficult manuscript was even translatable. So G.E. Moore, who was one of the most important philosophers of the era, declared it untranslatable. It was full of the new logic that Russell and Whitehead uh, and Frege had pioneered, so it was unfamiliar to a lot of people for that reason, but it was also, the Tractatus was also written in a very uh, kind of punchy form as a series of numbered remarks, and people didn't know what to make of it. So it was not clear that there was anyone who could translate it, um, and someone, my guess is it must have been Russell, uh, thought, well, it's obvious that the the undergraduate Frank Ramsey is the one who could do this. He, he knew the logic, he was a mathematics student, he was very interested in the issues, and indeed, uh, he turned out to be a superb translator. To get to that point, and to have a, a, an adequate understanding of philosophy and logic, what kind of books is Frank imbibing? He's only 18, what, what's he reading? What's he up to at Cambridge? In his last two years at Winchester College, Frank had an, an, an amazing reading list. A lot of books were given to him by a really quirky Cambridge Don who was a family friend, uh, Charles K. Ogden. But Frank had read all Russell, a uh, huge amount of mathematics, the f- foundations and philosophy of mathematics. He'd read wi- widely in economics, Marshall. He'd read uh, lots of German mathematicians. His reading uh, list, as I said at the end of his time at Winchester, would have just felled anyone. It's just, uh, it, it's. he was going through sometimes a very difficult book a day. So he had read very widely, and he, he so he arrived at, Cambridge very, very well prepared, but mostly self-taught. Uh, he, he found his studies at Winchester very easy, uh, came easily you know, top in most subjects, and uh, he kind of breezed through school, so he, he did a lot of self-education. Coming back to the Tractatus, what was the core argument of Wittgenstein's Tractatus? At the heart of the Tractatus is what gets called the picture theory of meaning. And the idea is that uh, uh, you can take our propositions, our meaningful propositions, and you can break them down into their simple elements. So uh, take a very simple proposition such as the cat is on the mat, and you break that down and you have a cat and a mat, and if 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 the word cat links to an actual cat, and the word mat hooks on to an actual mat, then the proposition is true. There's a an, an issue, even with that incredibly simple proposition, the cat is on the mat, what do you do with the words the, or is, or on? What do they reach out to in the world and, and correspond to or link to? So this was the general idea of the Tractatus, that uh, a a meaningful proposition is one that can be broken down to very simple elements. Each of those elements 
corresponds to an object, a simple object in the world. And you can see how even with the cat is on the mat, there are problems, but there are big problems with uh, propositions about what is right or wrong. What in the world does does a, a term like goodness or that's unjust it's, so it's it's wrong to torture live cats uh, you can see that the word cat latches onto cats in the world uh, the verb torture it's hard to know what object that latches onto but certainly it's wrong uh, doesn't latch on to some object in the world called wrongness so Wittgenstein said that that uh, these propositions of ethics were without sense, they were nonsense, but uh, he made an exception for them and called them sort of higher nonsense. The propositions of philosophy are literally meaningless gibberish. They, they don't latch onto things in the world, and Wittgenstein was very hard about them. They're just nonsense, get rid of them. Except he had this tricky problem in that he had just uh, spent quite a few pages setting out propositions of philosophy and so <laughs> by his own by his own theory these were nonsense and he came up with this uh, what he thought uh, was a, a, a clever solution to the problem he said my propositions that I've just written down or uttered must be thought of as a ladder you climb up on top of the ladder and then once you get on top and you look down and you see that all of philosophy is nonsense, you kick the ladder out from under you, and you never utter another philosophical proposition. And Ramsey had a, had a very nice uh, comeback uh, to this, uh, this solution of Wittgenstein's. He said, what we can't say, we can't say, and we can't whistle it either. So you, you can't, you can't uh, get away with saying that the propositions of ethics are nonsense, but somehow higher. That's kind of trying to whistle them. And uh, and then of the move about climbing the ladder and kicking it out from under you, Ramsey said, look, that's just like the child at the breakfast table where the parents say, say breakfast. And the child says, can't. And the parents say, can't what? And the child says, I can't say breakfast. Well, you've just said breakfast or what Ramsey would say, look, Ludwig, you've just said all this philosophy, you can't now pretend that you haven't. (laughs) And the other subtext to the quip about, and you can't whistle it either, is that Wittgenstein was a very famous whistler. That's right. He used to walk around Cambridge whistling entire operas. (laughs) Quite Quite a strange character in many ways. Would it have been easy to be Wittgenstein's friend? No, uh, the one commonality that all of Wittgenstein's friends and acquaintances had is that they all thought it was very, very difficult to be his friend. He was really (laughs) prickly. He was completely unforgiving of even small slights where the the friend couldn't figure out what the slight was uh, in the first place. And then he would, Wittgenstein would cut them dead. Actually, he, he cut Ramsey dead for a few years because they had an argument about psychoanalysis and uh, he just refused to speak to him until he retur- Wittgenstein returned to Cambridge in 1929 and Ramsey found a way back into the friendship. The two are meeting quite a lot to discuss philosophy and 
Wittgenstein would come a couple of times a week to Ramsey's house on Mortimer Road and they'd have what Wittgenstein called wrangles in the third floor study. What were they wrangling over? So this, this was in the last year of Ramsey's life, 1929, when Wittgenstein returned to Cambridge uh, and the, the, the personal dispute happened in 1925. But yes, in the last year yeah. of Ramsey's life, Wittgenstein back in Cambridge and they, they would get together at least once a week and have these philosophical wrangles. Wittgenstein's uh, friend and Ramsey's uh, wife, Lettuce, describes them as, uh, as follows. Wittgenstein uh, would come into the house, he'd go up to the third floor, he'd put his head in his hands, and he'd mutter, oh, I'm, I'm so stupid, this is impossible, nothing is right, and uh, eventually uh, he would uh, come around to discussing philosophy with Ramsey, and then engage in a long monologue, not the let Ramsey get a word in edgewise until finally he managed to break through the monologue and then Ramsey would, uh, would deliver what I think are really uh, excellent criticisms of Wittgenstein's picture theory of meaning. And uh, my, one of the arguments in my book is that Ramsey really made Wittgenstein turn his back on the picture theory and turn his back on the Tractatus and become what we now think of as the later Wittgenstein. Can you elaborate a little further on the arguments that Ramsey put to Wittgenstein? Ramsey thought that the quest for logical purity that you find in the Tractatus and also in, in Russell's logical atomism and in the Vienna Circle's logical positivism, that this quest for purity, for certainty, to get the world exactly right, was just completely misguided. So Ramsey uh, called himself a pragmatist. He was influenced by the work of Charles Sanders Peirce, uh, the founder of American pragmatism. And Ramsey thought that you couldn't approach the concepts of truth and knowledge from this absolutist or objectivist perspective. You had to think of truth and knowledge as human truth and human knowledge. So you, the, the believer or the inquirer is, uh, is, an, is not separable from the proposition that corresponds or fails to correspond to the world. So Ramsey said, look, what we have to do is think about human belief and then ask ourselves what human beliefs are useful, what beliefs work, what beliefs get us what we want, uh, what beliefs work uh, in terms of uh, helping us move around in the world and control experience. And that's what uh, truth amounts to. How much do you see that view as coming out of that post-war generation who were kind of turning their backs on the worldview that in their eyes had kind of led to the Great War? You mean the, the logical, pure view? The idea that um, the truth is what works. Ah, so I, I think it's the other way around, really, that uh, that you ah. find in the late 19... 19- 
what, the 1920s and 1930s, a quest to control and to say what's really, really true and turn away from the kind of human subjectivity, political subjectivity, that, if you like, uh, caused uh, this world of uncertainty and this world of chaos. So you find in the 1920s and 30s, as I said, the Vienna Circle, people like Carnap and Neurath, uh, really uh, searching for an objective grounding for all of human knowledge. And, and that you can see as a, way, as, as a way of reacting against what they saw as this terrible uh, war of opinion or ideology. To tie off this thread, Wittgenstein eventually comes around to Ramsey's view. How long does it take him? It's clear that he started to talk about meaning not being a picture of reality, but as being what is useful to us, what works for us, what works in practice. He started talking in uh, these ways in 1929 and throughout the early 1930s, and then really by 1940 he had become the Wittgenstein who thinks that practice is what is primary and meaning is use, uh, and this is, as I said, what the later Wittgenstein uh, is. The second tussle I'd love to speak with you about is Ramsey and Maynard Keynes. And the big debate between these two centers around Keynes's treatise on probability, published in 1921. What was the argument that Keynes set out? And then what did Ramsey think of it? So Keynes very much in alignment with Wittgenstein. So back to Wittgenstein for a minute. Wittgenstein started writing the Tractatus before the First World War. He'd uh, come to Cambridge to work with Russell, and he wrote the Tractatus literally on the front. Uh, He was fighting for the Austrians. And so at the end of the First World War, he had this manuscript. So you have to really think of the Tractatus as starting uh, before the war and finishing right after the war. Same thing with Keynes's treatise on probability. He had started it uh, before the war, and it took him a long time uh, to finish it. He was doing other things, uh, such as uh, all of his really fantastic work uh, during the war with the Treasury. But uh, in 1921, he produces his book, it's published. And like the Tractatus, it is about uh, a kind of logical purity. So Keynes says that probability the probability that A will happen if B happens. Probability is a matter of the logical relations between propositions. It's it's an objective thing. It's measurable. And uh, Ramsey, uh, he was an undergraduate at the time, same time he's taking on uh, or thinking through the Tractatus, he argues against Keynes's objectivist account of probability and says, look, uh, uh, probability isn't a matter of the, the objective relations between propositions. There's no objective probability that my rug is blue if uh, the cat is on the mat. 
right? I mean, you can take any two completely unconnected propositions, and there won't be a probability relationship between them. But on Keynes's view, it seems that there has to be. He had a lot. He had many more objections. Some of them very technical. But but basically, his worry was that probability isn't like that. Probability is a matter again of what is reasonable to believe for human beings. So Keynes also had a, a quest to justify inductive inference in his treatise on probability. So inductive inference is that you infer from the fact that uh, every swan you've ever seen has been white, that the next one you see will be white. And you can see how this is related to probability. And uh, Ramsey said, look, there's no objective justification of inductive inference. You take the all swans are white conclusion. Well, it looked reasonable for a long time. But then when people went to Australia, they saw black swans, and uh, it turned out that their, induct- their well-founded inductive inference turned out to be wrong. So Ramsey said, look, um, both probability and the, and the justification of induction are about human belief. The justification for induction is that we have to rely on inductive inference. We, can't, we can't, literally can't even get out of our chair and leave the room without relying on inductive inference. Every time I've moved my legs in this way before, I've, I've lifted myself out of my chair. Uh, so Ramsey says, of course, inductive inference is a reasonable human habit. You won't find its justification in some more objective uh, manner. You just have to see that it's, it's a reasonable habit to, for human beings to have. And then you can ask all sorts of interesting questions about what kinds of inferences we should make using this mode of, uh, of argument. And I think Keynes says this after Ramsey dies in 1930, but Keynes was very shaken and indeed wrote very magnanimously of Ramsey's challenge, but he also thought that it doesn't really get to the bottom of induction just to say that it's a mental habit. To what extent do you think Ramsey really changed Keynes's mind on probability? So I, th- I think that you're completely right that those who seek a, a watertight justification for induction are never going to be happy with the idea that induction is justified or vindicated because it's a habit that we, uh, that we can't do without. So there's always a quest for something more objective you'll find the same thing with those who quest after a concept of truth that's more than uh, than the idea that a true belief is the best belief for human beings to have. So Keynes was not was was always hankering after uh, something more watertight with respect to induction, uh, but but he did uh, see that Ramsey had uh, successfully sunk his theory of probability. As his friend, as Keynes's friend, Clive Bell, who was actually living uh, with Keynes when Keynes was writing the treatise on probability said, he said, Ramsey pulled a stitch 
in Keynes's theory of probability and caused all the stitches to run, right? So it caused the whole garment to sort of fall apart. So Keynes never came up with a better account of probability, but he was always a little bit unsatisfied with Ramsey's idea that probability is subjective degree of belief and measurable in terms of whether that belief works or not. What about you, Cheryl? Are you unsatisfied with Ramsey's idea? No, I'm I'm a complete Ramseyan, and and in <laughs> fact, I I was uh, before I started to uh, work on Ramsey. So my background is very much in American pragmatism, and uh, all of us who work in American pragmatism have known that Ramsey called himself a pragmatist uh, and was influenced by Peirce, but. Uh, uh, it was only when I really leapt into his work that I thought I that I thought and saw that actually Ramsey is probably one of the best, if not the best, pragmatist out there. So I'm I'm completely with him. And the flow-on consequences for economics are difficult to overstate. This obviously births expected utility theory, subjective Bayesianism. Do you think that? In winning that argument, Ramsey has had an overall positive or negative impact on the economics profession. His, his impact on the economics profession is very interesting. So as you point out, uh, R- Ramsey figured out how to measure partial belief and, mm. uh, and really was the founder of expected utility theory, which underpins all of economics and most of social science as well. Uh, But he was really clear that you couldn't mathematize uh, economics, that mathematics had a role to play in economics, but it was a highly idealized role. So he would say things like, look, uh, no one can really make their beliefs align with the probability calculus. No one is rational in the sense of being uh, a perfect utility maximizer. So he he founded the idea that rational belief is the maximization of utility. I didn't found it, but he showed how to measure partial belief so that so as to make the idea really work. Uh, but he was skeptical of it as a as a way of doing real world economics. That said, uh, most economists know of Ramsey because he wrote two papers in economics and they were straight up utility analyses and each of these two papers founded a subdiscipline of economics. So one was on optimal taxation and the other was on optimal savings and if you go into any economics uh, department as a graduate student, one of the first things you'll learn about is uh, is Ramsey on these two important uh, really utility uh, maximization uh, calculations. So he was, he was brilliant at doing these utility analyses, but he was skeptical about them. He thought that uh, they were only good for highly idealized uh, agents and no one was perfect in the way that uh, this method seemed to suggest. Interesting. So very complicated, yeah, very complicated uh, relationship to modern economics. Yeah. 
Last year, I had Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England, on the podcast. He and John Kay published a book called Radical Uncertainty. But the way they summarised the debate between Ramsey and Keynes was, as you know, Cheryl, Ramsey wins the debate by arguing that anyone who didn't attach a consistent set of subjective probabilities to all uncertain events would be vulnerable to a Dutch book. In other words, they'd lose money if they bet at those probabilities. But King and Kay think that that argument is nonsense because it's strange to say that the way people gamble gives us any insight into rational behaviour under uncertainty. And in reality, we shun randomness. We don't take bets at every possible turn. We kind of observe that distinction between risk and uncertainty. From what you're saying, Ramsey also intuited that distinction and thought it was potentially inappropriate to apply his ideas in the way that the economics profession eventually applied them? Yes, that's exactly right. So he, 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 he set economics on this uh, highly idealized, mathematized course, but he was skeptical about, about it. So one of the hmm. things that I uncovered when I was writing the biography is that uh, while, while Ramsey was writing these two path-breaking papers in economics, he was running around Cambridge giving a talk called Mathematics and Economics and arguing against the very uh, conception that he was setting out in these papers. So if you had met him in 1926, you would have had a very, you would have encountered a very complex uh, thinker. But our, uh, our impressions of Ramsey these days is that no, you know, he put forward these uh, brilliant arguments about how rationality is consistency with respect to the probability calculus, and he put forward the uh, subjective utility maximization model, and he is responsible for uh, the state of modern economics being so highly idealized and highly uh, mathematized. But as I say, that wasn't Ramsey. If you look at the papers that he was um, running around Cambridge reading at the time, he was throwing a spanner in the works of the very machinery that he set up. There's another interaction between Keynes and Ramsey that I find very interesting. It's lesser known, but I find it interesting because because of what it says about uh, each of the men, respectively. And that's a, um, a conversation they have about a paper that Ramsey writes and their point of difference is around discount rates. Do you re- recall that paper and the point of difference? So this was a paper that Ramsey wrote on how much a nation should save for the future. Yes, yeah. And in economics and in utility theory, uh, there's uh, an immediate problem about saving for the future, for future generations. And that's that, well, those future generations might not exist. There might be some nuclear catastrophe or world war that wipes them out, some, you know, some germ in the drinking water. So it looks as if, from a utility uh, calculation point of view, we should discount the value of future generations because they might not exist. And here's another way in which Ramsey was not uh, was not the champion 
of of utility theory that he's often taken to be. So in that famous paper, it's called A Mathematical Theory of Savings, he, he says that it is ethically indefensible to discount the well-being of future generations. So he's throwing a point about ethics or justice into the utility calculation, and he refuses to, uh, to discount them. What does it mean to be a genius, and does Ramsey qualify? I personally don't really like the term genius. Yeah. It gets, uh, gets thrown around a lot. Uh, but if we're going to uh, think that some people are geniuses, uh, then Ramsey certainly counts. So he, he made real indelible marks on, depending on how you count, four or five discrete disciplines. Philosophy, economics the foundations of mathematics, probability theory. He, he was uh, an amazing, uh, he had an amazing mind. And when you think that he died just shy of his 27th birthday, uh, it's very hard to not just shake your head and say, oh my God, he was a genius. <laughs> if anyone was a genius, he counts. One of the striking things about some of his most lasting contributions, his strokes of genius, if you will, is that they were almost asides, like they weren't the main game for him. That paper on optical taxation, for example. Is there anything in that that we can learn? Well, well, here's, here's the most uh, alarming, if you like, example of this phenomenon that you just mentioned, that a lot of Ramsey's most famous uh, innovations and ideas were almost asides. So he, he's writing a paper in the Foundations of Mathematics trying to solve Hilbert's decision problem, 1928. And does a very kind of philosophical foundational paper. But he decides that he needs to prove a lemma. So he literally steps aside from the main argument, which is about like the philosophy of mathematics, and he uh, he he writes eight pages of uh, proof. And those eight pages are now Ramsey theory in combinatoric mathematics. This is an incredibly fruitful uh, domain of pure mathematics. Again, you go to any math, math department, you'll find a couple of Ramsey theorists. And it literally was an aside. He stepped, as I say, uh, away from his primary philosophical argument to uh, <laughs> prove this. So, uh, this is a feature of his thought. Um, in philosophy, there are, are a whole bunch of things named after him. Ramsey sentences, Ramsey conditionalization. And Ramsey conditionalization, won't go into it, uh, is literally a footnote in a, in a draft of the paper that he wrote. And we have now famous philosophers uh, spending, uh, you know, decades working on this footnote of Ramsey and, you know, showing how it's really uh, fruitful. Same thing in economics. He writes these two papers. Uh, Keynes kind of, one almost wants to say bullied him into writing them. Keynes encouraged him to write them. And Ramsey, there's one uh, very charming letter he writes to Keynes. He says, okay, here's the 
drafted this paper. Uh, I really want to finish it because it's distracting me from the more fundamental philosophical questions that uh, you know obsess me at the moment. So he he writes these two papers, as and they're distracting him from his main business. And each of these papers uh, was included in a volume uh, that the the journal, the economic journal, which was Keynes's journal, uh, put together for their 125th anniversary. So. 125 years, one of the most important journals of economics, they choose their 13 greatest hits, and both of Ramsey's papers are included. And the editors have to say, uh, look, we have to explain why we've included two papers by one person. I'm sure there are lots of disappointed uh, uh, economists out there or or fans of, of various economists who are disappointed not to have their person in this volume. And they explained it by saying, look, each of these papers, uh, you know, sparked a, a branch of economics. We had to include them. And again, they were kind of asides for Ramsey. Should we infer from that phenomenon that many of his strokes of genius were asides, that he was like an intuitive genius rather than a plotter? He was an intuitive... He was much more an intuitive intellect than a plotter. And one frustrating thing about reading Ramsey in philosophy, in economics, in mathematics, is that everyone says that he never uh, slowed down to fill in the details of his proof or to fill in the details of his argument so that we mere mortals could uh, follow nice and easily. And there's hmm. one paper where he uh, he says, much to the eye rolls of subsequent generations, oh, this is this is too boring to write out the details of this proof. And, you know, 30 years later, someone finally figures it out. <laughs> right. So in that sense, he must have been a poor teacher. He, uh, surprisingly, was not a poor teacher. Uh, he, his students absolutely loved him, and they say that not only was he warm and friendly and informal and said, call me Frank, which was not the, <laughs> not the norm in, in the 19, 1920s Cambridge, uh, but that he, he really was patient with them, took time to go through proofs with them. He used to say... Uh, of all applied math. So he was a mathematics uh, uh, don in Cambridge. So he would say of the applied problems that, oh, I'm useless at at applied math, I know nothing. And then he would solve the problem by like going back to first principles, like going back to, you know, Newton and (laughs) and working it out. And so his students absolutely loved him. Which I suppose speaks to his character. He was famously very genial. And what were his personal relationships like during this period so, of sort of the, the mid to late 1920s? So as I said at the outset, he was a very young man when he arrived in Cambridge, less mature than his fellow students who were war vets. Uh, and he was very messed up about his relations with women uh, when he was an undergraduate. Everyone, you know, this was after the 
First World War, Roaring Twenties, everyone was having fun, everyone was having a lot of sex, and he wasn't. So he was, he, uh, was paralyzed with his relations uh, with women, and that's, uh, he happened to be interested in women. A lot of his uh, closest friends were, were what they called at the time homosexual, but Ramsey happened to be interested in women, but he was paralyzed. And so he, he developed, uh, towards the end of his undergraduate degree, a crush on a married woman who was part of that facet. Uh, and uh, it wasn't that uh, her being married was an obstacle uh, because there were a lot of affairs being, happened, uh, being conducted by this woman and their whole uh, group of friends. But uh, she wasn't interested in having an affair with this young uh, man. And so he took himself off to Vienna to be psychoanalyzed. Uh, And he was cured uh, during this stay in Vienna, this is 1924, although he probably was mostly cured by uh, going off to see a professional woman really uh, right after he arrived and she kind of got him got him through his hurdles uh, yeah. but when he returned cheaper than he, psychoanalysis uh, that's right he went through the psychoanalysis <laughs> anyway but I think he was probably cured before it um, but when he returned to Cambridge he immediately uh, contacted a, a woman that he had been interested in uh, before he left a woman named Lettuce Baker who he then very quickly married because uh, they were involved in a relationship and uh, you could lose your job if you were found to be having sex uh, when you were not married. And he was a very young, brand new mathematics don at King's College, Cambridge, and he was very worried about being fired if anyone found out that he was in this relationship. So they solved this problem of Ramsey's worrying about uh, whether he was going to be fired by getting married. Uh, but his wife, Lettuce, very much part of Bloomsbury, and she uh, was very clear that if they were going to get married, it had to be an open relationship. And uh, Frank was perfectly happy about this. This was his set as well. He was part of the Apostles, you know, he, uh, this secret uh, Cambridge discussion group, which also was infamous for uh, the number of affairs <laughs> conducted uh, within yes. it. Um, and, uh, and he found another uh, great love. Uh, so he, he remained married and completely devoted to Lettuce and their two daughters. But uh, very quickly, he found a second love, a woman named Elizabeth Denby, who was a progressive uh, civil servant at the forefront of uh, the housing movement for reforming uh, housing for the poor. And, uh, and he, they, they formed a kind of happy, open uh, trio, as Lettuce called it, and, uh, and he had a very happy personal life. Hmm. But his sex life with Lettuce Baker wilted. No, 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 no. Um, they they remained uh, c- completely engaged uh, and devoted to each other, but in an open, a principled open marriage. Got it. Now, was Frank a member of Bloomsbury while he was an undergraduate? He certainly was on the periphery of Bloomsbury. He, Virginia Woolf mentions him 
in one of her diaries. She met him at a probably at a lunch party of Keynes's when he was an undergraduate, and he and he was friends with lots of people who were uh, in the Bloomsbury set. Lytton Strachey, for instance, went to Hamspray uh, for weekends uh, and hung out with uh, with that set. But certainly after he returned from Vienna and after he married Lettuce, he was much more at the center of Bloomsbury because Lettuce was. So what I don't understand is he was a genius, he was genial, he was tall, he wasn't, you know, deformed in any (laughs) obvious way, and he belonged at least to the periphery of the Bloomsbury set, which even by the standards of today, was remarkably promiscuous. So I don't understand why he struggled with women to such an extent that he had to go and get psychoanalyzed for six months in Vienna. Well, when you say he was he was tall, uh, and and you know too tall, <laughs> not yeah, not obviously deformed. He he was an awkward he was an awkward kid, and okay. uh, and, and as I say, awkward, shy, bullied at Winchester. Uh, not at all confident of his social skills. And, you know, so it's completely unsurprising that he would have found mm-hmm. matters of, of the heart difficult. Got it. Talk me through the closing sort of months and days of Frank's life. How did he die? 1929, the most productive year of his life, and hence, one has to think, one of the most productive intellectual years of anyone's life, just did an an unbelievable amount of superb work. So things are going brilliantly for him. He's got two little girls who he's completely devoted to. He's got a wife. He's got this second great love. Everything is coming together for him. He's writing a book uh, on truth and probability. And he gets jaundice, kind of catches a chill uh, after a feast at uh, King's College and uh, gets jaundice. And there are all sorts of letters from people uh, who, who knew him, who visited him during this time. They say, Frank's getting yellower and yellower. He doesn't look well at all. And uh, let us herself got some kind of flu and Frank moved uh, back to his uh, father's house to give her a break from nursing him. So it was two or three weeks of, of not being well. And uh, he actually raised the alarm. He wrote to Lettuce and said, look, things, this is, you know, not going well. Uh, can you, can you contact uh, your uncle? Uh, who's a surgeon at Guy's Hospital in London, and ask him what he knows about jaundice. So the uncle uh, takes a look at Frank, comes to see him, and by ambulance he was sent uh, to Guy's Hospital in London, where they operated to see if uh, if he had some blockage, uh, and uh, it was no blockage, um, and he died the next day. Wittgenstein was at his bedside, as was uh, his wife, Lettuce. It's not completely clear from the death certificate uh, just what the cause of death was. With some help of uh, two really uh, 
smart uh, medical professionals. I have come up with a hypothesis based on all the letters and uh, the descriptions of uh, of what was happening to him. One of them said, "Look, uh, you know, this uh, looks." To me, like leptospirosis or Viles disease, because when they operated on Frank, they found not just his liver but his kidneys also in what the what Lettuce reported was a frightful mess. And uh, leptospirosis is a, a bacterial infection you get from often swimming in the river where uh, the feces of animals has uh, has infiltrated. And uh, both these medics said, yeah, you know, this makes sense. It, it looks like leptospirosis. There is leptospirosis in the river cam. Frank did like swimming in the river. But one of them said to me, look, you know, given the, the you know, the incubation period uh, here, he would have had to be swimming in late October. But now you can go onto the internet and Google weather Cambridge October 1929, and it turns out that it was an unusually warm uh, end of October. So it's not it's 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 not inconceivable that he could have been swimming at the end of October in the river, and this might well have been what killed him. What's the reaction to his death among his family, among his friends, amongst the Cambridge community? They were absolutely gutted. Wittgenstein was so gutted that he, uh, in, a, in a fairly typical fashion, behaved really badly. He wrote a letter. The letter doesn't exist anymore, but there are, are reports of it uh, in Frank's family. Uh, Wittgenstein wrote a letter to Frank's father saying, you killed your son. You didn't look after him when he was, <laughs> when he was ill properly. And you can go, who writes that kind yes. of letter <laughs> to a father? grieving his son's death. But I think it was an expression of just how uh, destroyed Wittgenstein felt about, uh, about Frank's death. It, it, you know, Keynes, was, Keynes wrote to his wife, Lydia Bukova, from the King's College uh, senior common room uh, a week before uh, Ramsey died, and, and he said, things are so calm in Cambridge. It's, you know, the holiday. It's everything's lovely. And then the next letter he wrote to her was just devastating. You know, F- Frank Ramsey has died. And then Keynes actually got on the telephone and he, he called everyone. And, and the reports again are that, you know, he was massively upset. It just, it hit Cambridge like a sledgehammer. Ramsey's friend, Braithwaite, wrote in his obituary of Ramsey that Ramsey would have found questions about the meaning or purpose of life nonsense because that's what his philosophy claimed. Would Ramsey have thought, of, thought questions about the meaning of life were silly? You know, so I think Braithwaite has it wrong. Braithwaite actually got most uh, things about Ramsey wrong. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it turns out that they weren't talking uh, very much, Braithwaite and Ramsey, in the last year of Ramsey's life. I surmised in the book that the reason Braithwaite seemed not to know anything about what Ramsey was thinking in 1929 
I surmised that it was because Wittgenstein came back and all the philosophical air was taken up by Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein was very sniffy about Braithwaite. He didn't think Braithwaite was up to it. And so I, I, I surmised that perhaps you know, Wittgenstein just edged Braithwaite out. Uh, since the book has been published, um, I've discovered something. Someone emailed me with a, a gem, and I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you what it is because it would be a spoiler. I'm right now I'm right now uh, working just about finished uh, making corrections to typos and the like for a paperback edition, and I have a bit of a revelation about Braithwaite that I'm um, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to drop in the paperback. Uh, but to the meaning of life, Braithwaite's wrong. Ramsey did think that you could say things about the meaning of life. So he has this uh, wonderful paper he, uh, he read in Cambridge in 1925, and I end the book this way. He says that his perspective of the universe isn't focused on the fact that the universe, or his perspective on the meaning of life, isn't focused on the fact that the stars are massive and far away and eventually the universe is going to go up in flames uh, or cool and die. His, foc- his focus, his perspective is on the human and on what works best for human beings. And he uh, was arguing against Wittgenstein, who was very gloomy. He was depressive. Uh, and Russell, who was focused on the fact that the universe is so vast and you know, will eventually burn up, and so what's the meaning of life in the, in, of a human being in the context of this vast universe? So Ramsey says, look, you can't focus on the vastness of the universe. You have to focus on human beings, what they're going through, what is good for them here and now. And he said, uh, I'm optimistic, uh, and th- that's the way to uh, get through life in a way that is meaningful, not just to get through it in some plotting way, but that's the meaning of life. It's just, it's just to focus on making things better for human beings and being optimistic that you can do so. So he, he had some, I think, some very interesting uh, and sensible things to say about the meaning of life. And his life was full of meaning. He, he said in this paper, you know, I, I find the universe uh, a wonderful place. Uh, and he had all sorts of reason to think that it was wonderful. Uh, he had everything going for him. He would have made really, uh, uh, he would have continued to make remarkable progress across this vast range of disciplines had he lived, uh, but as we know, he, uh, his life was cut short rather brutally. You're a philosopher, and Ramsey was um, mm. a giant in the field. He was also a pragmatist. So obviously, you already knew a lot about him before you started the period of researching for the book. But during that period of intense research, where you're le- learning a lot more about Ramsey's work and his life, did anything you learned in that did anything you learned in that period kind of change the way you approach either your philosophy or your work? Even just down to, I don't know, like, did you learn anything about how to emulate Ramsey's levels of productivity? <laughs> well, so a number of people have asked how Ramsey managed to 
do so much in such a short life that also was so rich and full of uh, personal relations. And uh, so I didn't have to learn this because I was already doing this. But Ramsey, like Bertrand Russell, was very principled about how he worked. Every day, every morning, he started off writing, even on holiday, Mm. probably on Christmas Day. And then after a couple of hours, maybe three, he stopped writing and he went for a walk and he he took pupils, started teaching, did administration. But every single day he got his writing in first thing. And that's uh, that is a, a pretty tried and true methodology for a lot of people, a lot of uh, people who managed to get a lot done. So that's how he got that. all this work done. Yeah, and, and I had already, I had already done that. But I, right. I clearly learned so much by just diving into one life and one intellectual, incredibly fruitful intellectual period. That um, it has actually changed the way I do philosophy now. I'm right now working uh, on Oxford philosophy. Uh, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, Gilbert Ryle, John Austin. And uh, as I speak with you, um, I'm in Oxford, and uh, even though uh, we're still uh, somewhere uh, in the UK, hopefully towards the end of a pandemic, uh, there's one archive that, uh, that is open, and I'm sitting with Gilbert Ryle's papers. And this is... Uh, clearly uh, something that I will continue to do and I and it's something that I I, I really learned and has enriched my life through uh, working on the Ramsey biography fantastic just to come back to those writing habits do you know what time Ramsey would rise and begin writing it's not uh, written down he wasn't a, he wasn't a very good diary keeper but mm-hmm. uh, one gets the sense from uh, how he talks about his days that he probably started around 9 or 9.30, broke for lunch at, uh, at 1 o'clock, and then the rest of the day was free for all the other things he had on the go. And when you say writing, is he just writing in a journal and... Is he also reading, or is he purely writing? I think that the early morning period is uh, was for Ramsey a writing period. Mm-hmm. Reading, you know, happened in the afternoon, and he didn't write in a journal. Wittgenstein did all his philosophy in his journal, and yeah. Ramsey did all of his philosophy in economics and mathematics, and probability theory, by either writing drafts of papers or writing. Uh, notes to himself. And we have uh, much uh, of this material still intact. It's, uh, it's at uh, the Archives of Scientific Philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh. They bought Ramsey's papers. It's absolutely thrilling to go and, uh, and be with you know, the original documents. His handwriting was appalling when he was a, a schoolboy. So one of his uh, school teachers at Winchester said to him, look, don't even try cursive, you know, stick to printing. And so you have this almost childish uh, handwriting, printing. Uh, uh, you've got the most amazing proofs and the most sophisticated thoughts being set down, uh, set out in this very kind of childish 
uh, childish printing. Uh, but uh, we can kind of go through these materials and see how Ramsey's mind was working because he just jotted things down and there they are, they're perfectly legible and, uh, and you know, you can see all these drafts of his papers. Unfortunately, very little was published and almost everything is in this unfinished draft form. So there's a lot of filling in that uh, the reader of Ramsey has to do. When you write, do you write with a pen or on a computer? I write on a computer, um, and I also tend to, to write uh, drafts right away, not uh, not so much uh, notebooks, but I'm not uh, emulating Ramsey. I, I always did this. One okay. very interesting <laughs> thing is to take a look at, say, the at uh, uh, Braithwaite's archives in Cambridge, and you see how Braithwaite also starts off with pencil and paper in the 1920s, and then he moves to, you know, kind of photostat and photocopying. And then by the end of Braithwaite's life, you know, he's on the computer and you have computer printouts. And when you think about that, that so, you know, they're both born in the early 1900s. Braithwaite lives till he's mighty old. And Braithwaite, Ramsey's exact contemporary, lived to write on a computer. And yet Ramsey dies in 1930, which seems like, you know, like a different yeah. era altogether. Wow. So I sometimes think it's pointless to think in counterfactuals, but what do you think Frank would have gone on to do or achieve had he not died so young? So interestingly, Ramsey had a view of how counterfactuals could be uh, if not true, could be uh, rational. Useful. So he, right. Yeah. So he, his theory of counterfactuals, and that's the footnote that I mentioned earlier. He says, look, if you take your stock of beliefs and add the counterfactual, had Ramsey lived, then he would have such and you know done such and such. You can see how your beliefs might change by adding uh, that counter to fact antecedent had Ramsey lived then such and such and some uh, you know some counterfactuals are not going to be reasonable had Ramsey lived he would have uh, been a brilliant billiards player well that's not a reasonable counterfactual because he was awkward and he was never going to be a brilliant billiards player but I think we can say had Ramsey lived he would have finished the book he was writing uh, it would have made a huge impact on philosophy. That was a, very much a, a, a philosophy book. As it was, that the drafts that he was writing were only uh, published in 1991, I think. So, you know, he dies in 1930, and only in 1991 does the world kind of get a glimmer of what he was, uh, what he was trying to set out in this book. Uh, and it's there are very much drafts, unfortunately. But he would have finished that. He, there's no reason to think that he wouldn't have continued to make huge advances in economics, in mathematics, in probability theory. So the, the world is lost, or the world lost. I think one of uh, one of their most sparkling minds ever. 
Sharon Mizak, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to the paperback edition. Is there a publication date for that yet? I, I, I think probably five or six months it should be out. Okay. Until then, I can only speculate as to what you were told about Braithwaite. But Godspeed and thank you for your time. Thank you. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Two things before you go. One, if you want to read the transcript or the show notes for this episode, you'll find them on my website, thejspod.com. Number two, please subscribe to the show. It means that you won't miss new episodes like this one, and it also makes it easier for other people to find us, and I would appreciate your help. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our dehydrated video editor is Al Fetty. I'm Joe Walker. Until next week, thank you for listening. Ciao.